talk about um, concepts of mercy and justice a lot in the church. Justice and mercy, mercy and justice. And it's easy for us to feel or think that those, those concepts of mercy and justice are like disconnected from real life. Um, abstractions or theological points that, that don't really make a difference in everyday humanity. And, and the fact of the matter is it's exactly the opposite. Um, that justice and mercy are so deeply embedded in what it means to be human that it, 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 it's the source of much of the conflict around our world and even in marriage and in family. I mean, that's how, how important it is. It is so radically practical and important and a, uh, that it affects everything. I was just pausing this week and remembering last year in which we saw people rioting um, all over the country because of a perceived injustice in Ferguson and New York City and also in Baltimore, you remember? Because people sense outrage at injustice. That's what, what, what um, injustice causes. Now that tells me that justice is pretty darn important to people. People are angered when they feel or perceive something to be unjust. You look at marital conflict, and there's a lot of it. I see more than probably most people. Almost always, it's over an issue of justice. One believes they're right, and the other believes they're wrong. Is that, is that true? And the argument is like, one person's wrong. I'm right, you're wrong. I'm right, you're wrong. That's an issue of justice. Two different perceptions on what is right. Justice. Uh, on the flip side, if injustice creates a sense of anger, well then, when justice moves favorably at least according to our perception, well, then we find ourselves joyful and celebratory. There's a large segment in our culture, in our country, that is celebrating what they perceive to be um, the victory of justice in winning equal rights for a certain group of people to marry whoever they wish. You may not agree with their perception of justice, but I tell you, they are celebrating what they believe to be a justice. I mean, that's, that's, that's how important, central, and vital it is to, to, um, to us as humans and why there's so much conflict surrounding perceptions on what's just, what's right, and so forth. I was thinking about um, in the book of Judges, I think it's the book of Judges, where it says they, people did what was right in their own eyes. Did what was right or righteous or just in their own eyes. People choose to live how they believe or what they believe just is. Justice is. Uh, so it's, it's, it's core. Injustice creates anger. Justice, perception of justice, creates joy. I think the same could be said of mercy. I said there's two concepts, and they're going to come together in this passage before us. Mercy is, is one of those things that also is deeply ingrained in us and has a capacity to create either joy or, or anger too. And if you happen to be uh, speeding down Highway 12, go 90 miles an hour, and you get pulled over by a police officer, and you just happen to be blonde-haired, blue-eyed, petite, and beautiful, and you have the spiritual gift of, of a pouty face that just, just pulls out compassion from anybody, and the officer, normally giving a ticket to everybody, walks up to you, and you give him those eyes, and he's like, listen, just this once, I'm going to let you off the hook. Slow down. If you were that blonde-haired, blue-eyed woman, you'd feel like, yes, I got mercy, me, I'd be upset because I never get mercy because I don't have blonde hair or blue eyes. That is what I perceive to be 
an unjust application of mercy, favoritism, and probably some form of sexual bribery. Interesting. I'd be upset over that. She'd be happy over that. Or, you know, you have a second mortgage on your house. You find out the guy next door who has a second mortgage on his house, he has completely forgiven that second mortgage, and this has happened. Awesome. I got mercy from the bank, if you can ever call that mercy. But it's, it's a remittance of debt, right? That's what it is. It's, it's a, a form of mercy. Meanwhile, you, same bank, you don't get forgiven your $150,000 second mortgage, and your house goes into foreclosure. You'd be a little bit upset over the inequitable, or what you perceive to be an inequitable, unjust application of mercy. He got it, I didn't. Same kind of thing. These things are, 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 are deep in, in our human experience, the idea of mercy and justice, and, and um, people are either overjoyed at getting it or, or they're angry about the injustice or not getting it. Well, how does that relate to Jonah? Well, beginning in chapter 4, we get to see Jonah's experience of what has just happened previously. If you weren't with us, most of you probably know the story of Jonah, but let's just do a little, just a, a, a stroll down memory lane. God gives Jonah in chapter 1, verse 2, a commission. Arise, take my word, go to Nineveh. He doesn't want to go to Nineveh because the people are evil. And so he goes, he books it the opposite direction, goes east, west instead of east, rebels. And we find God hunting him down. We find him in the ocean, and we find him in the belly of a fish, and then we find him on shore. God comes to him again in another second act of mercy and says, all right, let's try this again. He says, go to Nineveh and give him my message. And, and the prophet reluctantly goes. He preaches his five words in Hebrew of doom and gloom. And wouldn't you know it, the Ninevite people, in an almost unprecedented display of repentance, turn to the Lord. I say unprecedented because everyone from the king all the way down to the animals put on sackcloth. And the entire city, which was great in the eyes of the Lord, uh, repented. I don't think anything like that's been seen in the Old Testament. At least not on the part of the Jewish people, but here are the Ninevites doing it. And God relents. That is, he decides to show clemency, mercy, pardon. That's the expression of mercy, concept number one. Chapter 4, verse 1, we get to see how he feels about it, how the Jewish prophet, Jonah, feels about mercy given to the wicked Ninevites. And in verse 1, we find that he is outraged. This is how it reads. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. His displeasure was exceedingly uh, displeasurable. And he was angry. He's downright ticked off. That's interesting. You know the phrase, um, displeased, exceedingly? A literal translation of that in Hebrew, and it might be actually footnoted in your Bible if you actually have your Bible. A literal translation would be, it was evil to Jonah. Great evil. Word evil is the same word used in chapter 1, I think it's verse 2 or verse 3, where it says the evil of Nineveh has come up before me. It's God speaking about the evil wickedness of the people. Here, the same words are being used of what or how Jonah feels about God. 
That is, he sees what God did in showing mercy to these people, the Ninevites, as deeply offensive to his sense of justice. He's mad, angry. I think maybe just we may not never be in a place where we're like Jonah in the sense that um, we see God have mercy on a, on a major city that we don't like. But I think at some level we can sympathize with the fact that there are times in which we find ourselves feeling like God isn't fair in our lives. Um, maybe withholding something we think we deserve or allowing something into our life like a pain or a sin or a loss, which we also feel is somewhat unfair, and that we find ourselves in different seasons just angry with the Lord. I know many of Christians who have been angry with the Lord or disappointed is another word that we use. You know, disappointment is that assumption, I think, that um, God is not treating us as he should. That's an implication of justice. Like if we were to do it, we'd do it differently. Should. He should do something, not something else. That's, I, I, I can, in my my own spiritual life, honestly, say that there are times when I find myself frustrated with the Lord. Well, you can imagine he is excessively frustrated. Have you ever been there? I think there are people in this room right now who are like, yep, I've, uh, I've, I've felt that way about the Lord because I felt I deserved something and I didn't get it, or I had something happen to me that shouldn't have happened, and I feel like God is unjust for letting it happen. So there's a piece of Jonah in all of us. So he's outraged, upset. In the next part, we find, because we don't know exactly why. Why does he feel like it's a great evil or um, an evil, a great evil to Jonah? And we find out the rationale behind this or why he's so angry and so upset in verses 2 and following. That is, we find a prayer. He prays to the Lord. Now, the first time we saw a prayer, it was a prayer of thanksgiving while he was in the belly of a fish. This is the second time he prays, only it's a prayer of complaint. He's complaining, and there is an accusation in this complaint. It says, and he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, or Yahweh, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Okay, so just follow me here. This is the missing piece that we didn't see at the beginning of his story. In Jonah 1, 2, we find God giving him a mission. In Jonah 1, 3, he books it in the opposite direction. Well, what happened? Was there any discussion or, or complaint? What was going on in his head? Well, this is what's going on in his head. He's, he comes to the Lord and he says, listen, this is what I said when I was in my own country. In other words, between verses 2 and 3, they had a conversation with each other. In which Jonah was like, listen, if I go to the Ninevites, I suspect just, just maybe you'll be merciful. And it happened. It's like exactly what I said. You went soft on them. That's what I feared, which is why I booked it in the opposite direction. Didn't I say this was going to happen? It's like, I told you so. That's kind of what I told you this was going to happen. That's why I fled. But the reason he suspected this was going to happen is because he knew something about the character of God. And that's right in the middle of verse 2 after the word for. For I knew that you are. And here he quotes a very famous Old Testament verse. Exodus chapter 34 verse 
6. For those of you who aren't familiar with that verse, that's, that's kind of what I consider to be the galactic center of the Old Testament revelation. It is the one place where God declares his heart to Moses. And it's, it's quoted by David, it's quoted by Nehemiah, it's quoted by many of the authors in the, in the Old Testament because it was, it was the center of what they believed about, about Yahweh. And so Jonah, apparently being a student of Moses, I mean, his Bible, however big it was, at least included the first five books um, of Moses. And this was kind of his galactic center, too, of what he knew about God. And he quotes that text. And I will kind of put them side by side so you can see it. He talks about God being gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Way back in Exodus, chapter 30, 34, verse 6, um, this is where the glory of God is passing before Moses um, as he hides him in the cleft of the rock. And as God's glory passes by, the proclamation is the Lord, or Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. You see, that's almost a direct quote of first part keeping his steadfast love for thousands, forgiving, this is all mercy, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But who will, now there's a big, huge reverse. But who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. That's God's own self-declaration about his character. And Jonah quotes the first part, the positive part, the merciful part, the forgiving part, which I think implies that he thinks God in showing mercy to the Ninevites in such a way is diminishing his commitment to justice and to punishing sin. In other words, he has kind of a lopsided view of God in light of what happened at Nineveh. You're being overly merciful and you're not punishing the bad guys. The second part that he didn't quote. The other thing, just to keep this in mind, and, and um, uh, as to, because you ask the question, why are you so upset over God showing mercy to people? The language that he quotes, that is Exodus 34 6, is set within the context of God's covenant love and covenant commitment to Israel. Now, Moses is up on the mountain, they've, they've received the Ten Commandments, and this is God's way of saying, you're my beloved people, I will take care of you, I will protect you, I will bless you if you obey me. And later the people say, yes, we will do all that. That is, this is set within the confines of God's covenant love to Israel. That's the language. So, what's the big deal? Why is he so upset? It's, it's, not, because, it's not because he doesn't like God's love or or mercy, or forgiveness? Obviously, he does. In chapter 2, in his prayer, he talks about those who hope in God's steadfast love, his hesed. So he obviously loves God's love, and loves God's mercy, and loves God's forgiveness. So what's the problem? The problem is the quandary of justice that God's he gets the sense that the same kind of redeeming, forgiving, merciful, covenant love that he has for his people, Israel, is now pushing beyond the boundaries of Israel to its enemies. It's, I mean, it doesn't come full force until the New Testament when you find out God's love does, his, is for the nations. But here he's, 
He's suspecting that God's covenant love that he has for Israel is moving beyond the boundaries of just Israel. And what does that mean for the people of, of, of Israel, God's, God's own people? That God would show mercy to the enemies of Israel who are going to attack and hurt Israel. Like, where's justice in that? We thought we were your people. Or maybe a, um, I was trying to think of how to get my head around this. And, um, and it helps for me to think about what we naturally do And at some level, the Bible validates in viewing humanity as an us and them. We naturally do this. We're Christians. We're believers. We're part of the church. We're part of the body of Christ. We're the us. But then there's the unbelievers. There are people that the Bible would call unrighteous or or wicked, and that's the, the them. And at times, the them is openly hostile to the us, to God's people, the people that Christ died for. The Old Testament language uses it that way, of an us-them. And one of the things we get confidence in is, is we say things like, if God is for us, then who can be against us? If God is for us on our side, well then, we got it made. Right? We all believe that. I mean, that's, that's, that's Bible. Psalm 118, the Lord is on my side, I shall not be afraid. You notice he's on my side, not the other side is the implication. Or the Lord is on my side as my helper. I will look in triumph on those who hate me, the other people. Now, what happens when you come to the realization, wait a second, he's on my side, but he's for my enemy too? How is he on my enemy's side and on my side at the same time? That that feels like a travesty of justice and a betrayal of that covenant commitment and love for his people Israel. You can see it's blowing his categories. So you you love my enemy in the same way you love me? And his whole categories of theology are being blown apart here. And in the process, suspecting that the Lord is going light on justice, that God's not going to repay evil of this wicked city. Well, that's, that's where he is. We, even, even, I think, in, in, in the developments and the, the transitions within our culture, and I, I try and get my words right here, we do perceive an enemy, whether we call it that or not. We perceive an enemy in political opponents, in moral uh, changes that we would disagree with that are being forced upon our culture. And we easily think it's the us, them, and God is on our side. And so, but at the same time, we also recognize that God has love for his enemies, and many of those enemies are going to come to him, which means he's for them too, you see? feel maybe a little bit of the, the quandary. How does that work itself out? How do, how do we live, live that way when you realize God is actually for our enemy too, in a certain sense? Well, what Jonah couldn't see is that God had mercy upon Nineveh in the 8th century. Um, but just over a century later, God's wrath would fall. His justice would fall on Nineveh. It would be raised to the ground, never to rise in human history again. It was a mercy for, for a time, and then it was... Judgment and justice and justice did fall eventually. So I, th- I think part of that is the, the, the real key to understanding why he's so upset. It's not just God's love and mercy. 
It's God's love and mercy toward enemies at the expense of his justice. At least that's his perception of it. Now, before I move on, can I just make one observation about that Exodus passage that I'm going to come back to in a moment? Um, Verses 6. Let's see, where does it end? Um, Verse 6 and 7, halfway through 7, seems to be at odds with the last part of 7. There is a huge sense of impossibility in this self-revelation of what God is saying about him. Follow me, okay? On the one hand, it says that the Lord is abounding in forgiveness and mercy and love. He abounds in this kind of kindness that forgives iniquity and transgression and sin, right? But then he reverses himself and he says, and I will by no means clear the guilty. First part of verse 6 and 7 talk about pardon, and the last part of chapter, verse 7 talk about punishment. Pardon and punishment. I mean, pardon is basically taking the punishment and saying, no, I'm not going to give you what you deserve. How can God be both things at the same time? How can he apply both things to your life at the same time? I mean, how can I be pardoned of my sin and be punished for my sin at the same time? Have you ever stopped to think about that? That's the character of God. And there's no resolution to it in this verse. How can God be perfectly and fully and abounding in mercy and forgiveness at the same time, hold everybody accountable for sin? Okay, I hope you realize that that is, a, that is in a sense, an impossible combination. Okay, back to Jonah. After his complaint, he gives his rationale. I knew you were going let to let him off easy, showing mercy to my enemies at the expense of your justice. And then he, he, there's, there's this final, I don't even know if it's a request. This is more like a, um, a surrendered disgust. He says, therefore now, O Lord, since you did this thing that I consider to be evil, great evil, please take my life from me. So just, just take me down. Just snuff me out right now. I'd rather live dead. Contradiction. I'd rather be dead than live a life where this reality is true. For it is better for me to die than to live. That's completely given up. I'd rather take a dirt nap than live with what God did to the Ninevites. Showed him mercy. And yet, at the very end, the Lord still responds with tenderness. Do you do well to be angry? And I think the sense of it is, why are you, of all people, so angry? That's the voice of a, a merciful shepherd to a very angry and judgmental prophet. So, you said we were just going to look at these four verses. What, 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 what do we take practically, personally, corporately? How do we apply this to our lives? One thing is to recognize that Jonah serves as a negative example of what we shouldn't do, Right? One of the things that Jonah has done, if you look at it, is that he has, given the evidence of what God has done and his experience, he has elevated himself to a position where he believes that he can judge God's actions. You see that? 
He believes that he has a right at some level. He is judging God's actions and is saying, this is great evil to me. This is deeply offensive to me, what you have done. And accusing God in a rather subtle way of not being fully just. So, the opposite of that is this. is to accept the fact that God's mercy and justice are always beyond our scrutiny. That is, when it comes to the expression, God's sovereign expression of mercy and justice, they are expressions of his sovereign rule and his unfolding plan of redemption. This spanned generations and eons of time. And no human, prophet, apostle, you or me, can ever take the evidence of God's sweeping actions and come to a final conclusion as to whether God is righteous or not. And when we do do that, when we find ourselves with an inward sense of contempt, like, Lord, you're not being fair, what we are doing is we are sitting in judgment upon the Lord. And of course you're going to be angry, and of course you're going to be bitter. Of course you're going to be cynical when we put ourselves in that position. And, and don't we struggle with that all the time? Why was God disciplining the people of Israel in Jonah's day and giving grace to the Ninevites? That's part of his sovereign expression of his being that we can't scrutinize. That is, we can't come to judgments upon. Why does God take one life and give another life? Why does God prosper the wicked and at the same time give his people over to persecution and death? In different times, in different places, in different ways. It's just easy in our lives of of God taking and receiving and subtracting and adding and and the pain and the sorrow and the injustice that comes with all of that to think that he's unfair. And in effect, we do the same thing. And it does lead to an angry, bitter, cynical spirit. Rather than recognizing that the Lord is the everlasting God, he's the creator of the ends of the earth. He never faints or grows weary. And his understanding is unsearchable. There's no way of grasping the works of God and coming to conclusions as to whether he is just or not. You might as well take a peephole and stand five feet over the Pacific Ocean and try and see the whole thing at the same time. You can't do it. It's impossible. Only magnify that by about a billion. Or trying to understand the vastness of space all the way around you in full orb sense through a straw. That's all we have. We can't come to adequate judgments over Yahweh and his works as to whether he is just or not by the limited scope of our puny humanoid minds. just can't happen. And that's precisely what Jonah does and sometimes what we are tempted to do. Can I suggest that the, the more joyful response is to let God be God and to recognize, you know, when the psalmist talked about God's love and mercy, he said it, it extends to the heavens. Can I see to the end of heavens? No. That means you're never going to fully understand. He says his judgments are like the great deep. Are you ever going to get down to the Mariana Trench and look over? No, you're not going to. Too high, too low. And those are just figures of creation, the biggest ones we have. He's saying they're vast beyond us. The Apostle Paul, with all he knew 
about God and the gospel and mercy and justice and putting things together in the book of Romans still, at the end of chapter 11, just says, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. Justice, unsearchable and unfathomable his ways. That is, that is a heart humbled to let God be God. And may I say that there's more joy and happiness of letting God be God over his justice and mercy in your life, my life, and in our world. Correct? God be, be God. Does that mean, by the way, that we hang our intellect and mental ability to try and figure things out at the door? No. God made us to be reasonable, rational, seeking, understanding beings. We like to put things together. He made us that way. We should be thinking these through, things through and should be questioning things. But at the end of the day, and this is a, one of the best quotes that I have found on this, and it comes from a book called The God I Don't Understand by Christopher Wright. He's a British writer. He said, faith seeks understanding. Faith wants to know and put things together. But at the end of the day, faith does not depend upon understanding. I don't have to know it to believe it, even though in believing it, I want to know it. So that God, maybe, maybe God needs to be God in your life in some way. And, so, and, and you just sense right now the Lord is just like, hey, you just got to deliver this over, over to me. Um, the whole issue of, of subtraction, addition in your life, just trust that I see the whole picture. And if you could, you'd fully understand, but you can't. Second application is to remember that you too were enemies of God in need of mercy. It's one of the things that Jonah forgot is that at one point, the people of Israel were unrighteous like every other nation. They weren't chosen because they were more righteous than any other nation. In fact, I suspect that God chose them because they were a definitively stiff-necked and stubborn people so he could just show off how gracious he was, not how great they were. And to remember that there was a time in which Moses cried out, chapter 32 of Exodus, when God says, I am going to wipe out my people. I'm so disgusted at their idolatry. And, and Moses gets in the way, unlike Jonah, and says, no, take my life instead. Relent from your anger. Remember your promises. And God relents like the people of Israel experience this kind of mercy. And if you forget that, you know what, the only reason you're here this morning is because God was merciful, not because you were moral. Um, if you forget that, then, then you start to feel like the us-them we're talking about is based upon some moral standing, not on the sheer act of God's grace and mercy alone. Just have to remember that. Paul reminds us over and over again, remember, remember, remember that you were dead in your trespasses and sins so that you don't look down on somebody else because it's not your moral standing that put you in a place of mercy. It's my mercy and grace that put you in a place of mercy. We do well, well to remember that, by the way in our view of those around us that we consider to be hostile to our faith. Remember that at once we were hostile to our faith too. And the third and final one is rest in the fact that God's mercy and justice will eventually triumph and come to perfect conclusion. We like to think of those two categories of mercy and justice and we easily think God is 110% mercy and 90% for justice. 
we kind of communicate that because we talk about mercy triumphing over justice if it's more powerful. In a sense, mercy has fulfilled justice. Maybe it's a better way of turning it. But the fact of the matter is God is 100% in both directions. He is 100% for mercy and 100% for justice. By the way, those are not equals. Mercy is a free act upon God's heart. He is free to have mercy upon who he will have mercy. Justice is a necessary act. God will always be just, but he can be free to be merciful. But he's 110% for both, not one over the other. But we come to that, that problem. How can God, let's just personalize this, Dan Deckard. How can God pardon me of my sin and punish my sin at the same time? Exodus 34.6, how does the resolution come? He can't forgive me and penalize me at the same time. Can't pardon me and punish me. How does this, these two great aspects of God's character, of mercy and justice, how do they come together in a way that mercy and justice are fully satisfied and fulfilled? Well, there's, you, know, you know the answer to this, right? Like the, the, the only answer to the dilemma of God's character as it relates to his people is the cross. My, my sins were punished, and your sins were punished. He did not let the guilty go free. Just somebody else paid for it. At the exact point where God also unleashed his mercy on the enemies, on people like the Ninevites, and people like you, and people like me, all over the planet, simultaneously exercising perfect justice, not leaving the guilty unpunished, at the same time offering pardon. Could, 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 could a solution come that is more beautiful and appropriate and perfect and wonderful and wise and immeasurable in wonder? Justice and mercy perfectly brought together in the person of Jesus so that we no longer have to fear because our, our sins have already been punished and we have already been pardoned because we have, we have taken refuge under the shade of God's gracious mercy in the cross. And that we do well to remember that. That just as God perfectly resolved things at the cross for all believers, we have to trust in this crazy world that we live in where people are calling right, wrong, and wrong, right. We have to remember that ultimately God is the sovereign ruler exercising his sovereign mercy and justice as he will in his own way, in his own time. That we don't have to take matters into our own hands. We don't have to react and think that somehow if we don't grab hold of the steering wheel, everything's going to go off rails. There's somebody in charge here. And we can trust him with those things. And we can trust that ultimately he's working out his mercy and he's working out his justice already. And sometime it's going to be finalized. I mean, Paul tells us the wrath of God is already being revealed in the world in the giving over of people to what they want. That's a form of wrath. Already happening. God is already executing justice. We don't have to think, well, isn't God going to do something about this? He already is. Read the news. It's already happening. At the same time, God's mercy is, gonna, is going to surprisingly free people from many of those decisions and, and those lifestyles and and you're just going to be baffled by the fact that God saved enemies at the same time he brought down justice in a way that only he could do. Only he could do. 
and simply to trust him with that, that there is a final resolve. So in that debt of injustice that we oftentimes feel angered by, at very least we can offer it up to the Lord and say, God, I want you to be God, and I know you're going to execute justice. I know you're going to execute mercy. Does he use us in the process? Absolutely. But ultimately we do not depend upon ourselves to accomplish God's justice and mercy. We depend upon him to use us to accomplish his justice and mercy. Amen? Let's let God be God um, in this church and in our lives. Father, we thank you for your kindness and mercy. We confess we do not understand um, how you work, that it is indeed a mystery. We want to acknowledge and confess with the Apostle Paul, um, oh, the depth of the riches of your wisdom and knowledge. How unsearchable are your judgments and how unfathomable your ways. Lord, we want you to be God in our lives. Give us confidence and faith to believe that is indeed true, has always been true, and will be true, and you are the perfect resolver of all problems. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.